Welcome into the show today. So excited that you've joined Ask the Masters. My name is Dave from Fluid Dynamics, and this is the first official kickoff of season two of the show. Today we sit down with Dave Peterson. Dave Peterson runs Watershape Consulting, which is a engineering firm based out of Solana Beach, San Diego, California. And Dave is both a structural engineer and a hydraulic engineer. He's actually also a civil engineer. So we talk a little bit about dispelling some of the myths with engineers and working with engineers. Here in California, we work with engineers on all of our jobs, but I know in a lot of places throughout the country, uh, people don't work with engineers. And so we wanted to explain some of the reasons why you might consider working with an engineer. And then some of the benefits, what an engineer would need from you information-wise in order to properly engineer your project. It's a really great conversation that Dave and I have and hope you enjoy it. You do not want to miss the next lifestyle event with Ask the Masters on February 27th and 28th. We are being hosted by Bazaza Tile, Laticrete, and Wet Edge, and we're going to get dirty. We're actually going to install paper-faced Bazaza Tile with the backdrop of Laticrete, all at the Wet Edge facility. Enjoy. All right, welcome to the show today. My name is Dave from Fluid Dynamics, and uh, we have uh, our good friend Dave Peterson uh, from Watershape Consulting back. Today, we're going to talk about engineering. Um, uh, Dave and I work together on a number of projects. We do a lot of hydraulic engineering um, and structural engineering of a lot of projects. Um, one of the things that around the country, um, many pools are built without structural engineering. Here in California, every permit requires a stamped set of structural engineered plans um, for every job here, but that's not the norm throughout the country. Uh, so let's just get into a little bit, uh, for, for those people that, that are not familiar with working with an engineer, um, why would you have engineering? Um, and, and also, um, if you're contracting with a pool contractor, um, what's your thoughts on allowing a contractor to self-engineer a pool and things like that? So, um, uh, but let's start off with uh, kind of um, what's involved in structural engineering, what are kind of some of the minimum requirements, and, and what is your, how do you view that as an engineer? Yeah, well, uh, I guess the first part is where is engineering required and where is it not? And I, I think I would probably sort of pose a question you know, to the audience or the architects out there and say, would you design a house for somebody without doing engineering on it? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you need an engineer necessarily because an architect can do structural engineering for you know, a, a project like that. But you wouldn't feel comfortable sleeping at night worrying about whether the roof was going to fall in on you. Right. And so you, you're required to get engineering for your house. And in some parts of the country, you're required it for a swimming, uh, required to do that for a swimming pool as well. Now, that's not always the case because most pools, when they fail structurally, it's not a catastrophic failure. Right. Nobody's dying because the, the, the structure imploded or fell down a mountain. I mean, that's a pretty dramatic uh, you know, thing to happen. So. Uh, so it's not always required, but that's a big mistake in my opinion because uh, you know doing expert witness work all over the place, uh, all over the country, um, we find projects in areas where they weren't required to do structural engineering. They might not have even been required to do a permit other than maybe an electrical mm. permit. Uh, some of our cases are ones where the only requirement was that the contractor called up the, uh, an electrician to put a sticker on the electrical panel 
Wow. And then the inspector comes out, and if he sees the sticker, he says, you guys are good to go. You can swim in the pool now. Hmm. We found electrical problems on those projects. So clearly the person putting the sticker on doesn't understand Article 680 in the, in the code. So um, problems all over the place. But structurally, it's, uh, it's a good idea to have it figured out anywhere. Now, that could be a standard plan or it could be a custom plan engineered specifically for that project. We've taken the position that every one of our members needs to have site-specific structural engineering for every one of their jobs, whether the municipality is requiring it or not. So that's one of the things that we hold our membership to. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned a couple of terms. Let's kind of get into that a little bit more. Um, you know, custom engineering, site-specific engineering, standard plans, all of that. Um, you know, it can get a little bit confusing for people that are not familiar with the terminology. Mm -hmm. So um, kind of, let, let's kind of start at the bottom of the of the hierarchy there with your your pre-approved standard plan uh, and, and kind of explain what that is and then all the way up to full custom. Yeah. Well, I, I, when you say starting at the bottom up, I think you're sort of focusing on it from a, a cost standpoint because sure. the, the least expensive way to do the structural engineering would be to buy a pre-approved plan where it's basically a, a sheet that's got a series of tables on it uh, and some generic sections and dimensions in there. And so really the builder could call up and say, hey, I'm gonna build 10 pools this summer. Send me 10 copies of that sheet, mm. which has already been approved in the city that they are planning to do their work in. So they do a site plan, staple it to that sheet, and go get a permit mm. over the counter in, you know, in, in, in many cases because the engineering has already been approved. So the only thing you're doing at the counter is making sure that you've uh, set the pool back, you know, from your setbacks and, you know, you don't have any easements running through it or something like that. So it's really more of a, de a planning department issue as opposed to an engineering department issue because you have the engineering pre-approved. Yeah, one of the limitations to that is that really at that point, it's all on the contractor. It's all on the person that is stapling that plan to it to certify um, the soils and, and the, the positioning. Uh, so the engineer um, that, that sends out that plan uh, it has not inspected the site, uh, has not looked at the soil conditions, does not, has not reviewed a soils report. So really, um, uh, from that standpoint, the liability all really relies on the contractor uh, at the end of the day. Right. And they're often not getting the soils report and, and missing it. I mean, I've had cases where somebody bought engineering from a company that has valid calculations and everything to back up their their sheet. The problem was is that they didn't get the soils information that would have told them the EFP was 120. Mm. And they're reading off a plan where it maxed out at 60. I mean, they, they were only getting half of the equivalent fluid pressure of the soil pushing in. And that active pressure being half and building it to that standard and then finding out later, once it rained, that the soil was just going to crush the shell, turned into a, a lawsuit. So yeah, and and that's not really necessarily on the con on the uh, engineer. on the engineer right. because the the contractor did not do due diligence to understand the condition that he had, and yeah, the pool shattered, but of course it is because it was the wrong engineering. 
Yeah. So that's the real limitation that I see with pre-approved um, engineering details. Uh, so I would, uh, the next step up is going to be kind of your standard plan. Uh, kind of describe that a little bit. Yeah, well, I would say that the next step up from that would be you could use a plan like that, but you could meet with the engineer and say, here's my soils report. And, you know, if there's other details that are needed, the engineer could pull things together and try to build a set. But that does get a little confusing because oftentimes you've got the standard plan that's been approved by the city. You may have additional details, which may or may not have been approved by the city. Mm. And then the really confusing part is that you're asking the builder to interpret different things. Like, well, this section's telling me to do this, and this one's telling me to do that. And you know, do I add that steel together or, you know, this one just requires one more bar. Do I just add the one bar to this detail to make the two, uh, you know, coincide with each other? So that gets a little bit tricky when you're trying to marry up, you know, five different standard details into one. Thing. Yeah, because on a standard or a pre-approved set of plans, there may be six tables, you know, and so at three and a half feet deep, uh, there may be different schedules at that depth um, because they're trying to cover numerous different situations. And so, uh, again, it's back on the builder to understand which column within that table is appropriate for the specific job. And then, yeah, you add in additional details on top of that. And which one are you following? The, the, this table in here or which column in this table over here? So it does become, uh, and, and for a homeowner uh, or a, a design professional, you know, it, it can be really quite confusing. Right. So, but the benefit of, of actually sitting down with the engineer and saying, I, you know, let's take your standard plan and let's add in whatever details and marry that, of course, to the original soils report mm -hmm. and the, the site plan and the, the plan of the vessel, it, at least the engineer at that point can kind of see everything. He can look at the soils report and say, well, the EFP here is 90. So this plan isn't going to work at all. We got to get this other sheet and, you know, with, with the higher EFP, or maybe it's another detail that adds steel to the base plan or something. So at least at that point, the engineer is now sort of pulled into it and, you know, a little deeper and they do have to do a little more work to figure it out, but you can walk out of their office with a series of things that will apply more specifically to that site. Um, maybe you can still pull the permit over the counter. Maybe the additional details require it to be submitted, but usually it's you know understood that it's a, a pretty quick process with pre-approved plans at least. Sure, and there are some good details out there. Um, some of the things that I have seen missed um, before is that um, so many times the contractors go in with their site plan, uh, but they have not detailed what's going on 15 feet on the other side of the property line and you know it may be a cut lot and you've got a cliff on the backside or you know a one-to-one -one slope going back down um, and and the engineer if that's not delineated on the plan is maybe not taking that into account uh, and so it's really important that if you're going to go that direction um, you need to really take a holistic approach uh, you know if there is a downslope and you're trying to set the pool right out next to the downslope. I don't need to know that the where the property line fence is, is four feet down. What if the bottom of the hill is 200 feet down? Mm -hmm. um, and, and we actually were on a, uh, retained on a job probably about 10 years ago, and uh, the 
they had already worked with somebody to pulley engineering and it was completely inappropriate because the bottom of the ravine was 140 feet down I think but that was not accounted for in there and I came back to the client and said this pool needs to be on caissons and the the other builder uh, disagreed and said no we can just do a deepened keyway and uh, you know that was the big limitation we ended up not building the project um, because it was the, the, the plan set was not complete enough. So even though the engineer knew there was a hillside there and everything, didn't have enough information. This segment has been brought to you by Watershape University. Welcome to season two of the Aston Masters. Today is our first official podcast and I am really, really excited to announce that Aston Masters is partnering up with Watershape University this year. And today on the phone, we have the VP of Watershape University, Lauren Stack. Hi, yes, uh, Lauren Stack. I'm the Vice President of Watershape University. And uh, we're only five months old, but we have a, a, just a growing stable of brands and things that are important to the industry. First, Watershape University itself delivers high-quality live instruction, technical, many, dis- many disciplines really, including business, design, engineering, and, and construction. We have um, very talented faculty on our staff and excited to bring that education to you and as you as you spoke we will be kicking off our spring season and we'll get into that a little bit later. Another aspect is the International Watershape Institute and this is really the home for the leaders in the industry, those that have gone through our curriculum who are uh, influencers, who are coaches, mentors to other students in the system. They're also ones that teach, the, they're the subject matter experts. And um, we're really excited to have um, their home in the International Watershape Institute. And watershapes.com, which was an acquisition that we made in the fall, it is a digital asset that most people may be uh, familiar with, or should be at least, because it has a, uh, a vast archive of technical papers and articles that are um, very instrumental in helping people develop their technical skills. We also, that, that asset is an e-publication that goes out twice a month to many, actually tens of thousands of members of the professional community, landscape architects and architects. So that is very important to get exposure for our IWI members. And that's why it's kind of a closed cycle within all of Watershape University. And then just real briefly, I'll just mention a very exciting aspect of our business, which is the Live Blue Foundation. And it is a partnership between Watershape University and Wallace J. Nichols. And it's a 501c3 nonprofit with the goal of getting people near, in, on, and underwater for life. Yeah, the, the, the two things that I'm super excited about, I mean, I, I love the whole idea of Watershape University, and, and I'm going to be teaching uh, starting in the spring semester. I'm going to be teaching a class with Watershape University, and obviously I love education. I mean, from a from a, an aspect of the educational background that I have and, and being able to become a, a an instructor and part of the faculty of the university. That's really exciting for me. I love giving back. Obviously, that's what this podcast is about as well. So I'm looking forward to that. But um, the the whole Watershape magazine, that is just so, it, it's such a wonderful acquisition. When I heard that you guys had acquired that, I was so excited to hear that. It's kind of the Bible of, of 
water shaping and and architecture dealing in and around art. You know, I remember years and years ago when it was still in a uh, a printed format. I used to I used to crave every time the magazine would come in and. Uh, the day it would get delivered, probably within four hours, I had the entire magazine consumed. And I still have those archives and uh, I still have those sitting uh, on my bookshelf. I know exactly where they are in my office. And I can't tell you how many people I talk to that also have those. It's just there's so much quality information in there. So I was super excited to hear that that you guys had acquired Water Shapes magazine because it's it's such a great asset. Uh, and then as you and I know, uh, we're, uh, we're working with the Lid Blue Foundation. And that just, for me, that's a passion point. Uh, it's, I'm so excited to see that partnership with Wallace, uh, with Jay, as everybody knows him, um, that I, I, that's just going to be a great partnership. And I'm really excited to see where that goes and really getting the pool industry really deeper involved in the whole Live Blue Foundation and that whole uh, Live Blue and Blue Mind movement. That's, that, to me, I'm, I can't wait to see how that develops over the years. Yeah, I think Jay's um, helping us come to terms with the fact that pools are really the gateway to the world of water and that, you know, we need to embrace that as an industry because without us, people don't know how to swim, they don't know how to surf, they don't, you know, they don't take that next step into water activities without being comfortable around it and being able to swim. So it's, it's very important to us. So let's get back to kind of the meat of what we're going to talk about today. Uh, we'll have many conversations throughout season two talking about the different aspects and we're going to get into uh, a little bit more in depth about Live Blue. But today we really wanted to kind of announce and, and talk about the upcoming spring semester. Uh, and, and so this is spring 2020 and uh, we, everything is debuting here in March on March 1st. So can you kind of uh, bring us up to speed what you got coming in the first quarter and and here in the spring as we start our, as you guys start your educational uh, classes this year. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Um, our first school this spring will be March 1st and 2nd. It's going to be in Marco Island, Florida, and it's a two-day business school, which is going to, it's a new school, actually, being taught by Peterson, Bill Drakeley, uh, Julie Kasdan, and Paul Oman, and um, so that's going to be exciting. Then, we were we'll be out in Long Beach, uh, the Western Show, and we'll be um, have a physical presence there as well as a class, and that's cost estimating. And uh, this was a very uh, popular course that was offered at the International Show in New Orleans this past year and uh, in the fall, and we're excited to bring it to Long Beach. So that's good, and and we're also very excited about two short courses, one day each courses that we are bringing to the MPG outing in Birmingham, Alabama. So for those folks in the Southeast who are looking for good education, we have two options coming up. First is um, our Construction 2121, which is Introduction to Site Evaluations and Surveying. This is very much a hands-on activity type related course where you're um, learning things in the classroom but then applying them uh, in the in the lab, if you will, using equipment. So that'll be fun. It'll be taught by Peterson and Ryan Oaks, who's another one of our IWI members. And the second short course, um, again, it's an eight-hour course, which is uh, Reinforced Concrete Water Shapes. So 
learning the, the key structural concepts, compression, tension, shear forces, all those types of things and, and how that impacts your, your steel design and, and how you install it. Um, and, you know, looking for code requirements and, and all the reinforcing standards that have to be applied to um, pool structures. So that's a very important um, course for people and taught by experts, people that, you know, uh, Bill Drakeley is, he's leading the committee on pool structures within the American uh, or, um, Concrete Institute. So he's writing the standards. You can't learn from anybody more uh, in tune to what's going on than, than Bill Drakeley. Yeah, and that dovetails real nicely with the episode that we're listening to today about structural engineering and everything. So it's uh, if this episode that you're listening to today is is piqued your interest, you really want to sign up for uh, for that class. It's coming up March seventeenth, twenty twenty, and that's going to be the reinforced concrete. And uh, how can how can we get to it? How can we? Uh, where, where's the sign up page? Uh, just go to uh, go.watershape.org. Or just go to watershape.org and look at our curriculum page, and you'll see um, the ability to to get in and register for those courses. Yeah, and if you want to go directly to the reinforced concrete page, it's go.watershape.org/mpg for Master Pool Guild MPG2, and that'll take you directly to the page where you can sign up right online. And again, those classes are coming up in Birmingham, Alabama, March 16th and 17th. And then um, we we chatted about it a little bit, but I'm also super excited. The Western Pool and Spa Show in Long Beach, uh, that's where I will be teaching. Dave's offering the cost estimating class, was, which I took in the fall at the international show. And I can't encourage people enough. I mean, that, that class will sell out absolutely, hands down, without a question. Um, the class itself is worth the price of admission. But what you get with the class is you get the software. And the software, again, it, to me, it's like a, it, it's a two for one. You would pay that much for the software. You would pay that much for the class. You're paying once and you get both. I can't, we've started implementing the software within my company, Fluid Dynamics, and it is, it, it's changing the way we do everything. So that class is going to be great. Um, I, I'm, I'm super excited to see that being offered again this year. And then I'll be teaching a short course on transitioning from uh, the service industry into the construction industry. We've done that at the Western Show the last couple of years, and uh, we're going to be making some changes to it and and kind of fine-tuning it and, and adding some modules to it this year. So it's going to be a different show. So if you've taken it in the past, this year is going to be different. And if you found it helpful in the past and you want to take it again, it's not going to be a repeat. There's going to be a lot of different information and everything in there. So I'm real excited about that. So Lauren, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so excited to explore this relationship that we're going to have uh, between Ask the Masters and Watershape University. And I'm really excited to kind of use this platform to allow people to understand more and more about Watershape University, all the different facets of it. And so look forward to next time when we get together and, and chat about some of the other things. And I really want to thank you for coming on today. Well, thank you so much, Dave. We, we too feel the same way about ATM and, and look forward to many great things in the future. All right. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, and so 
Um, so let's uh, deviate just a little bit here. Uh, we've talked about soils reports a couple of times now. Um, why, as a structural engineer, is a soils report so important? Why is that? Why do you keep referring back to that? Well, the soil is the foundation for the pool, so you have to know what the pool is sitting on, and that's really what's going to tell you whether you can do just a standard shell in the ground or whether you need to over-excavate and backfill to solve a problem. Maybe you're just over-excavating a part of the pool. We had one of these where we, the whole pool was pretty much in really good DG, except for one little section of fill in the deep end. So when I had our soils guy go out to sign off on everything before we started putting steel in there, he said, you know what, let's just go take that out, we'll slurry it in with, with concrete, then we'll do the steel. So we were basically replacing some fill with concrete in this DG um, uh, soil profile. And at that point, I, I knew that the whole pool was sitting in such good dirt, we were never going to worry about settlement or, or anything like that. Sure. Um, and so, wh what's the process of getting a soils report uh, for somebody that's never done that? What, what generally is that? What's appropriate? What's not enough for you? Uh, what do you want to see? If I'm coming into your office uh, with a soils report, what are kind of the minimum things? And then what would be the ideal that you would want? Let's uh, talk through that. Yeah. Well, uh, the ideal thing would be actually a soil boring and maybe two of them if the pool was big enough that maybe you could have different soils in different areas, especially mm -hmm. on a lot of these lots where there's there's cut fills and, and, and transitions that we need to worry about. Might be good to take one on you know that the house side, which is often different from what may be out at the end of the property. Close to the slope, yeah. Or you might have a bunch of fill and then knowing based on, on those boring logs what you're dealing with because then you could look at it and say, well yeah, if we maybe we put the deep end over here and maybe we just put a little key on it and it actually affects the design of the pool. Um, or you say, well, that doesn't fit the architecture at all. We need to turn the pool 90 degrees and now because of the soils, we need to put it on caissons or much bigger footings or something like that. So it really starts to drive design decisions and then of course the structure itself. And we won't know any of that until we get all that detail. Now, if if it was a more simplified pool, maybe we don't need that. And I can actually call up our soils guy in, uh, in San Diego, and I can talk to him on the phone, and he's got a lot of soils maps. He can actually look stuff up right there and just say, you know what, based on the soils map, I think this is what we're going to find when I get out there. And I say, great, that's enough for me to start this process. There's nothing scary yet. And then we will go have you take a look when we get further along. Because further along for me means I want to get drawings to the point where I can put a bid together. And if I if the assumption is that there's not going to be a foundation because it's a pretty simple project, then I could put a construction proposal together for that based on standard you know, non-foundation uh, type of engineering, you know, in the ground, uh, shell shell in the grade. Once we get further on, then of course I have the soils guy go out there, and sometimes on those jobs it's after excavation. Sure. We dig the pool out, he'll come out, get in the hole, do a field report, I pay him 800 bucks, and I get, you know, a report of all the stuff that he's seen there. And if he wants me to over-excavate or something, or if he sees something and it's like, whoa, time out, we got a big problem, at least I'm only into it the cost of the excavation. I can go back to the owner and say, look, he just added a $40,000 foundation. So you could pay the 40 and we can keep moving, 
or I'll put the dirt in <laughs> and we'll split the cost right. because you knew what the <coughs> risk was. I took a risk and we'll work it out together. But at some point, you know, you you have to assess where the you know the, the client's temperature basically and what's their ability to uh, handle that kind of risk. Yeah, and I think it's real important to be having those discussions very early on with clients uh, that they kind of know going in that hey you know this is way it's gonna go we're gonna do this we're gonna have the soils guy come in and and just let them know that you know a small percentage of the time they're gonna come out and they're gonna find something that's like really major yeah yeah and, <laughs> and is not gonna you know you're not it, it may derail the pro the, the the entire construction project. So, yeah. um, the just a quick story on that. Um, uh, we had a job that the client um, is in construction, and so he pulled his own permits, got his own engineering, got everything, um, chose not to get a soils report, and then basically gave us the permit set and said, "Please price it." And um, we dug the pool, and uh, the the deep end of the pool. Um, ended up being we just got down into this um, the original plane so it was a newer uh, uh, construction area so it was a lot of fill and everything so we broke through all of the fill to the uh, to the place where we actually found an underground river uh, the mm. plane between the the native soil and the fill soil and there was literally a river running that had the pool been six inches shallower may not have seen it um, and brought the soils guy out and again he stopped construction said you cannot we will not certify this um, and uh, the, the client ended up costing about twenty five thirty thousand dollars they overdug the entire pool poured a hundred yards of slurry in there mm -hmm. and then we built the pool on top of that um, fortunately the client had connections to get some of that done at a reasonable rate but um, you know, that's, that's a story that I tell to my clients a lot of times about, hey, this is why you should consider getting your soils engineering up front, especially if your budget is really tight and, you know, a $20,000 change order is going to, you know, derail the project. Um, mm -hmm. So, um, but what, what is the anatomy of a soils report? One of the things, uh, even before we go there, um, uh, you do a lot of times what I do as well. Um, I have a soils guy that I work with locally. I've been working with him for 15 years. Um, he looks at every one of our jobs, um, except some of our bigger jobs. Um, and some of our more simple jobs, um, even just a little spa, I have him come out, do a bottom inspection, uh, and just look at it, make sure everything is fine. Uh, you know, he writes a letter, says, you know, he certifies it. He's got his little nuclear tester, and he gives us the, uh, the compaction, the density, all of that right there, mm -hmm. uh, and away we go. And, um, it's not that much money for him to come out and since we do it so often you know many many times a year every pool uh, we do he sees the bottom um, I can also call him up and I've called him up before and said okay here's the address and he said um, north side of the street or south side of the street you know and so they understand the overall uh, you know the, the general area that they're working in and and they can generally tell you once you've built that relationship yeah, this neighborhood is a problem on this half of the street or, or in this particular area. So that's right. a real critical piece, I think, to build that camaraderie and that understanding with your engineer. Uh, but um, so back to my question, uh, what is your, um, what's the anatomy of a soils report? Uh, obviously to tell you the, 
uh, expansion coefficient of the the soils. Uh, soils guy is not going to miss slopes and all of that thing. Um, right. You know some of those kind of things. Any other thing that you really want to make sure that you're getting from the soils guy? Yeah, I mean that that plasticity index is telling you whether that soil is going to expand or contract when it's subjected to different moisture conditions. And we're looking at you know also the bearing capacity. Um, that plasticity index affects uh, things like the active pressure of the soil and the passive pressure. And that's what we really need to figure out, you know, how, how hard is the soil going to push on the pool? And for a lot of these hillside jobs, if the soil's pushing on the pool and maybe we don't have dirt on the other side, maybe that's a vanishing edge, or maybe it's a, a pool in the ground, but there's a raised bond beam. So I've got active pressure that's higher on one side of the pool than the other, well, now we have to have passive pressure on the other side to resist that. Now, if, if both sides were ev even, you're just squeezing your pool and it's not going anywhere. But if all of a sudden you've got more soil on one side, then you have to w start thinking about sliding and tilting and is that going to cause you know, differential settlement and you know, how is that structure going to interact? Some are not really much of a concern. Other ones, you know, depending on the shape of the pool and everything, all of a sudden it, it's like, hey, we got to focus on this. And, we start looking at, you know, heel pressures and toe pressures, and you know, really looking at things like retaining walls, um, which are often part of our projects anyway. And we just want to make sure that things are going to be stable. And when you start getting into things like vanishing edges and things like that, then we start looking at what is the expected settlement or differential mm -hmm. settlement that we might have. And if if the soils engineer said, well, look, I expect three-eighths to, you know, three-quarter inch uh, even settlement over the next three years, then that's something we could deal with maybe with the edge detailing. Maybe it's a thick piece of granite that could be, you know, ground and polished if the thing came out of level. Um, if, if an engineer said, a geotechnical engineer said they were expecting two inches of settlement, then I would start saying, well, maybe we shouldn't even try a, an edge detail. Uh, maybe we should look at a standard pool or go to caissons or, you know, timber piles, helicals, you know, some other way to provide some vertical stability to the structure. Yeah, and, and differential settlement, I think it's a little bit of a bad name. It's a bit scary. Um, you know, we can design or not we, you can design pools to handle a, a certain amount of differential settlement. Uh, and and you know if it's a if it's a small structure and we create a rigid enough shell if it if it settles a half an inch um, you know that can be accounted for in the engineering but a vanishing edge pool that settles a half an inch you're you're having flow problems and everything so so it can really start to to um, inform the design decisions as well you know mm -hmm. you can come in and have this beautiful vanishing edge pool decide that the client doesn't want to pay for caissons to stabilize it because it's going to settle go back to a traditional um, you know coping pool and design the shell in such a way that it could handle that half inch of differential settlement and and you know save the client a bunch of money but yeah it changed the whole detailing of the the project as well right so um, Okay, so then let's get into kind of the, uh, the, the granddaddy of it all, site-specific and, and kind of what we really recommend as SWD for all of our jobs, what, what's involved in that, um, you know, so you've gotten your soils report, you know what's going on, uh, you maybe have a, a survey showing the topography all around the area, um, you know, you understand, you've read the soils report, who's looked at some of the seismic history, uh, 
looks at some of the, the overall uh, formations of the soils in the neighborhood, in the mm -hmm. region, um, and then you take that and, and how do you then design the pool? Yeah, well it's, uh, so really we, we pretty much do all of our stuff with, uh, you know, custom engineering where we're drawing, you know, a, a, a detailed plan view of that structure and then we're cutting sections through it to show, you know, the, the profile of the pool, the thicknesses of the shell, what the edge details look like. And sometimes we have, you know, blown up standard details in our sets that, you know, we've sort of done this detail a hundred times. So here's what we think the best way is to do it for this particular job. And we would just sort of link those details back to the main plan. But, you know, you should be able to kind of stand back and, and look at, at the drawing and your steel guy should know how to steal it. Your excavator should know how to dig it. Um, and if you got to form things up, you know, how, you know, what are the dimensions of the forms and everything should be figured out on paper ahead of time. And that's really different from a standard plan because a standard plan actually rarely even shows a whole pool, right? right? It's because the profile, you know, or the depths are all different. So they might just have sort of a wall detail and maybe you know at, at the deep end, maybe a wall detail at the shallow end, or maybe there's a, a ramp Normally detail. it's a table that I see. Yeah, you know, and so you're, you're, you're putting together a few things and then the you know different conditions on different parts of the pool, whereas we would tend to look at it like, well, let's cut a, a lateral section and a longitudinal section and you'll have you know two primary views and maybe one of them cuts through the spa so you can see how that interfaces with the pool. Or maybe that we are, uh, over digging the spa area a bit to get it into the same soil profile as the shallow end of the pool or some other point. You know, maybe it's maybe it's a little deeper, and we want those to be in the same soil so that the this spa isn't hanging out in softer soil, ready to sort of bend and, and start cracking things. So, um, so that might mean you know a different set of uh, you know maybe a pre-pour area under the spa to kind of fill it in and, and replace the the softer dirt with with better stuff so that's really you know custom engineering and there's no there's nothing that's pre-approved with any city for that because we have to do custom calculations for that so really the the builder as you've done many times you're getting sheets from us that have you know our seal on it you're getting a set of calculations that's separate and typically you're handing that over to the city and they're taking two weeks to review yep. it and get back to all of us on any comments and i suppose there's some something in between that too in, in between that full custom set of engineering and the city pre-approved stuff where you might have a lot of standard details but they're not necessarily pre-approved right so that might be a, a, a lesser cost on the engineering side. You're still paying for the, the permit uh, review and everything. So there's sure. a, an additional cost there as well. Um, but I, you know, at the higher end, there's really no other way to do it. And if you're getting into foundations, I don't know of any standard plan that would work with foundations very well. I mean, I suppose you could pull it off, but to me, if, if, you, if you've got to deal with foundations, just from an analysis standpoint, I don't know how you would put together a set of plans using standards 
when the spacing of the grade beams is important and you know the dimensions of the grade beams and how those might be connected to wall sections, other floor sections. Or, or grade or, beams or and tie beams and, yeah. and just all of the different things. That so then through. it's like it, it's definitely got to be a, a custom engineered project and yeah, maybe we're referencing some standard details but nothing that's a standard plan per se and nothing that's been pre-approved by the city. Yeah and, and every site at that point every site becomes very different you know um, if we're digging in uh, you know sugar sand at the beach uh, and it's just going to be a spa well maybe we can get away with helical piles uh, as opposed to coming out and drilling and casing and, and all of that um, you know uh, there's there's just there's different situations where you know I know you work in in the Northeast quite a bit out on Long Island and and timber piles they dri driven piles um, mm -hmm. so um, that's one of the things that I have learned, uh, you know, as we've been working together now for however many years, eight or ten years, um, is that um, there are multiple ways to tackle some of this. Um, and and uh, just being able to have communication with the engineer and say, okay, here's what I'm thinking at this specific site because here's some of the limitations. We can't get a crane in here to lift, you know, things in and so um, you know as as the builder I can come in and really give you some other information that may not necessarily make it to a set of plans right. and then we work together as a team to create a, a system that's going to be the most cost-effective for a client yeah yeah and I, I think for us because uh, we've been builders for a long time too I'm kind of getting out of that but you know having my guys out in the field seeing how things are actually put together I think it's helped us as engineers because we know constructability pretty well and we know when things are expensive and when they're not but sometimes we you know we have a different way of doing things than the builder or maybe we started a design thinking hey this will be built the way Dave Penton would do it but this isn't in Southern California it's in Texas and then mm -hmm. you know we start talking to a builder down there uh, that maybe we didn't even know when the drawings went out to bid and now he's looking at it going hey you know could I do this or you know kind of put a cold joint here because I'd like to pour the floor first and we're like yeah you know here's here's how we handle that and so then we might even go back into the drawings at that point and modify things or do some value engineering or just just tweaking some stuff up to help out the builder from a constructability standpoint but like all design, it's an iterative process. We're, you know, trying to work with you, even all the way through construction or even post-construction. Like, you know, you're starting things up, and you know, I'm out there, you know, looking at, at stuff and. You know, well, I think out. Uh, job that we just finished this, uh, you know, this winter. Uh, great example. Everything was done. Job was permitted. Uh, it was a case on pool, side of a cliff. Um, got out to the site, started drilling, and we hit a slab of material. Um, we had soils reports, but there was an existing pool um, in, in position, and so obviously we weren't going to blow through the existing pool. We, we did our, our borings out on the hill, and there wasn't this slab. There just happened to be a slab under probably a third of the pool, mm -hmm. and we drilled for five hours on this one piece of rock and got three inches. Uh, right. And we needed to go, you know, another, I think, six or eight feet um, per what your guys has calced out. And so even at that point, we're already permitted, we're in construction, you know, we had to stop everything, come back, uh, and and 
everything was recalculated. The piles were made larger in diameter. Um, a couple of them were in bearing, and, and we reworked everything. Um, had to go back through the city and that. So it's um, it, it, when you're working hand in hand with an engineer, uh, you know, it's really you can come back in and, and then I can rely on you. Um, and then, you know, the thing that I see missed a lot, uh, you know, whenever we're doing um, a, a custom engineered set of plans with you, um, we will have you guys come do site visits and do structural observation. Um, and that's, that's something that I don't see a lot of people doing. Uh, but to me, it gives me the peace of mind that, you know, that you are seeing you're interpreting because there is some interpretation you're interpreting uh, what we have put in the field and occasionally you'll come out and say well let's change this detail just a little bit and, and that um, so do you guys see that quite a bit uh, that you guys do a lot of structural observation or would you like to certainly do more? at the at the higher end I mean I'd like to not have to be running all over the country looking at stuff, sure but you know, I, mean, I just flew to Austin to look at one a couple weeks ago and it's the same kind of thing you know it's uh, it's an insurance policy, really, and it's amazing. We've actually had some jobs where I thought, oh, I know this builder is going to call me out for an observation. And then surprisingly, like I don't hear anything, and a year later he's calling back. me up going, uh, we got a problem, and I go out there, and then, then they start emailing me the construction photos, and I'm like, why didn't you call me a year ago? Because now <laughs> it's all in concrete. You're trying to hold water, and it won't. And right. that's because this isn't done right. You know, the laps weren't right or, you know, the wall. I, I had a, there was a pool that I only did the mechanical engineering on it because mm. it was somewhat integrated with a home. So the, the home engineer did the structural on the pool. And I went out there and there was a ton of steel in this pool. Beautiful steel walls, beautiful steel floor. There was no connection between the floor and the walls. It, it was sort of like... They missed the whole idea, you know, and I mean, the floor had a double curtain. The walls had a double curtain on this vanishing edge. But the bars just kind of ended. And there was no too. connection there. And I'm looking at it going, did your structural come out and look at this? They said, well, no, not yet. You know, we'll get to that. We just wanted to get the plumbing done. And I said, okay, well, you know, he may miss this. So I'm just going to point it out for you. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it's in his drawings. And so I went back to the drawings, and actually the drawings had some confusing things in it. I said, well, now I can see why the, the steel guy got it wrong, because this, the drawings aren't very clear. I said, you know, we need to add some L-bars in here. So I kind of redlined the drawings, took a few photos, and then when I wrote up my stuff on the hydraulic side, I just added in, hey, I, I know that I wasn't hired to do the engineering. I wasn't even hired to observe that. But I don't want to see you shoot this thing, because... We'll all end up in a lawsuit, you know. Sure. They'll they'll just sue everybody. So, yeah, I think it's it's a really good uh, insurance policy. And on these million dollar pools, what's a few thousand dollars for me to drive up to Beverly Hills for a day to, to right. look at it, or even you know five thousand to fly to Austin or something to look at it? It's cheap. Yep. You know, compared to the cost of the. the when whole you look pool. at it as a percentage, you know, it's really it's it. it it, that's what baffles me is that it's just not all that expensive. You know, if you've got a eight hundred thousand dollar construction job, you know, and yeah, it's 
$2,000 or whatever for you to come by. I mean, what is that as a percentage? A quarter of a percent? You know, it's right. it, the, the math just doesn't necessarily make sense in the long term. And uh, I know for me, uh, we just lay it out in our contracts that that is, um, you know, we organize it and everything, but um, the, you know, the client pays those, uh, those fees. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, it, that seems to make the most sense. So you said something that I want to touch on here as we're kind of wrapping up. Uh, you talked about, you know, uh, splice detail. I mean, you, you referred to splice detailing. Let's just talk real quick about contact splice, non-contact splicing, and all of that. And and uh, I know your firm has taken a real strong stance on that. And can you kind of explain why and explain some of the reasoning behind it and and the the reasoning behind the rules? Yeah. Well, let's just talk about a splice first. A, a splice is needed because you've got and splicing. What are we steel. talking about? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's reinforcing steel. And you know the bars are coming in 20 foot lengths, but a lot of pools are longer than 20 feet, or, or the bars are lapping up the walls, so even a 20 foot pool would need bars longer than 20 feet. So we have to attach bars together, and we're not sending someone down and welding them. You can just overlap the, the lengths of the bars, and that's called a lap splice to, to connect them together. Now, if you have the bars touching each other, that's a contact lap splice. If they are not touching each other, that's a non-contact lap splice. And there's a minimum distance between those, isn't there? Yeah, and, and so with if you are casting concrete and you're vibrating it into some forms or something like that, then having the bars touching each other is fine because when you shake the concrete, it's going to flow around and grab onto those bars, right? Now, when you're shooting pneumatically, you know, dry mix or wet mix shotcrete, the the concrete will hit that bar and there's a potential for shadowing behind it. In other words, the, the concrete hits the bar and, and it kind of fans out a little bit and potentially there's nothing back there. Now a good nozzleman is going to move around just enough and drive material behind the bar. Now as you can imagine, the bigger the bar gets, the more shadowing. potential for shadowing there is. So what ACI 318, the building code for reinforced concrete, what it says about shotcrete dry mix or wet mix is that you can you can shoot pretty easily with number threes, fours, and fives. That's three-eighths, half-inch, or five-eighths diameter bars. Once you go to number six bars, six-eighths or three-quarter inch diameter, you're actually, by code, supposed to do a test panel to prove that your shotcrete crew is capable of getting the, the concrete around a three-quarter inch diameter bar. And and what a test panel is, we've had to do them before, is we build a, basically a four by eight sheet. Uh, we just drop some bars in there and uh, and then the shotcrete crew comes out, shoots it around these big giant bars, whatever the largest bar size is, uh, and then we come in and core drill it um, mm -hmm. and and make sure that there's no shadowing behind. The city and the city requires that uh, and, yep. and uh, and the actually, actually is the uh, either the deputy inspector or the building inspector, and, and most of the times both of them want to see that core sample. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah. So so then going. going back to the the math really quick, if if a three quarter inch bar is requires testing, imagine that if you lapped two three eighths diameter bars together, mm. now you're at three quarters. Right. You, you should do a test panel. <laughs> and if it's you know two number fives, you've actually got. 10 eighths at that point right. when you lap them together, you inch got more than an inch of space there. And what happens now is, so let, let's say the bars are, uh, you got two vertical bars here and you're shooting in this direction. 
it's hard to get the mud into the cleavage behind the bars here. Mm -hmm. So what the code says is that for shotcrete, whether it's dry mix or wet mix, and no matter what the bar diameter is, you should actually use non-contact splices. In other words, separate the bars so that you never have that condition where you've got cleavage behind there that you can't get the mud into. And so, and then the code says, if you're gonna do that, you need them to be at least two and a half inches apart. Okay. Um, and that'll allow you to get the mud. Now you can imagine if I had bars every six inches and, I, and then I have you know, a grid overlaying another one and I have all these non-contact lap splices, all of a sudden it's gonna be hard to get the mud in there. So one solution is that rather than stacking the bars this way and shooting into the wall, you could stack the bars this way. Now you're shooting in this direction and it's a lot easier to fill the cleavage and get complete uh, you know, uh, encapsulation of the steel. But when you do that, you've got bars, you know, you've, you've added the, the, the wall thickness just got bigger because now if I'm using half inch steel, for example, if they were lapped this way, I've got a half inch and a half inch, it's an inch thick mm. total. But if I turn them this way, now it's two inches thick. So I just added an inch of thickness to the whole wall just to use that condition. Or I could just go to non-contact splicing. Sure. And I could save theoretically an inch of, of concrete. So different ways to do it. Some builders that were only doing contact splices took one of my classes. They went out and had to train their steel guys how to do it. The shotcrete guys were like, well, the steel looks a little different, but they all love it now. And now yeah. uh, what I heard is that those steel guys are doing that for all of their jobs. It's just an educational process. And you know, in some ways, it, it might even make it easier to tie. I mean, Mike Logsdon tells me his guys are you know easy, easily doing non-contacts now. So, um, so that's that's just a detailing thing. And in our drawings, we actually have a detail that says this is what the non-contact looks like, and this is what the contact looks like. But we don't show this detail mm. in our drawings. We don't allow for that. Um, now, do I? freak out when I see it in the field, you know, a couple of number fours lap like that? No, unless I saw a lot of problem ones or a very congested area, or if I was, you know, in a foreign country where I had no control over who was doing the concrete work and I was nervous that they weren't gonna get it right, then I might say, you know what, maybe we should retie this a little bit or, you know, separate the bars out or well, something. Well, if you remember, we had that job uh, in Newport about a year and a half ago. It just We were encapsulating the shoring caissons uh, and and just the, the way it calculated out and the way we had to lap everything over, um, we had to have so much steel in there. And mm -hmm. you came out and did the observation. You're like, man, this is really, it's really tight. And so, we came up with a way and, and talked with the shotcrete crew that we were able to shoot uh, a certain section uh, and then this other section where we had everything congested, Pour it was it. on a horizontal. Yeah. And so we actually poured and vibrated that whole thing. And it was all done still on the same day. Uh, yeah. So we didn't have cold joints or anything, but it's just, it's just kind of the pre-planning. And yeah, we had done it all per the plan uh, and, and all the non-contact, but when we got out there and started looking at it, it's like, man, you know, we, we got double mat here and there's a lot, there's a lot going on. And, right. you know, it added maybe 20 minutes to the job, um, you know, and, and the Shot Creek guy, they always have vibrators on their truck anyway. So, um, you know, we just kind of redid the, the, the way we did that, sequencing the sequencing of the, of the yeah. job. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, that was just 
everybody working together. You know, it was a it was a detail that I may not have completely thought through had you not come out and looked at it. And you know, but all in all, it didn't cost me any more money. Didn't didn't do anything, but we were able to give the client a better product. Right. Yep. So, all right. Well, thank you very much. And um, yeah, as always, uh, always love learning from you. All right. Thanks, Dave. Have a good one. Ask the Masters is dedicated to educating, mentoring, and designing a better workplace for the swimming pool industry and their families. Please take a moment to share, like, and review our content with all of those that would be interested.